0: Well, then, uh, let's turn to Exodus 12 again. And first of all, verse 8. Exodus 12 at verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire, which we looked at (coughs) last Lord's Day, these words in particular, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it, and then verse 11, and thus you shall eat it, or in this way you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Just taking these uh, two verses together, they're to eat this lamb with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, and they're to do it with a belt on their waist, sandals on their feet, and a staff in their hands. And as I just mentioned before the reading, we're taking uh, one more look with God's help at the great feast of the Passover, or the institution of the Passover itself here on this night, when at last Israel, after a 400-year period of captivity, were delivered from Egypt. And we're looking at the Passover, of course, especially in the light that the New Testament itself sheds upon it. The Lamb, of course, is at the heart of the Passover. John the Baptist announces Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians 5 Paul tells the church in Corinth that Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So that's a plain New Testament warrant even though we didn't really need one but it's a plain New Testament warrant for understanding the Lamb to be speaking of Christ. And uh, not only is that true in a more general sense, it's also very true in the specific sense of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a kind of continuation of the Lord's Passover. You'll remember that when the Passover proper was finished, that Christ took the bread and the wine that was on the table and he instituted there and then the Lord's Supper. So the last Passover uh, became uh, the Lord's Supper. And so we expect a a continuity uh, of a special kind between that feast under the Old Covenant and the feast under the New Covenant. And of course we're always to remember that Israel, or the Church if you like, or the Lord's people, call them what you will, all these terms are true of them, they knew that the Lamb here represented a substitute who was uh, dying for them. That was always understood by the Old Testament saints, right from the beginning, from the time when Abel uh, brought the sacrifice to God in Genesis 4. In fact, from the very first time, I shouldn't even say Abel, I should say when Adam and Eve themselves brought a sacrifice before God, they knew that a substitute was to die in their place. And this lamb roasted in the fire was to the spiritual Jew enemy. Anyway. I'm not saying that they all necessarily understood it, but certainly those who had the faith to understand and the eyes to see, they knew it was... God's substitute for them. And how profound a truth it is that it was God's firstborn dying instead of their firstborn. Or if you consider Israel as a whole as God's firstborn, which he calls them as a people, my firstborn son, he calls Israel, then indeed Christ, God's firstborn, was dying for the whole of the people of God. So that's the light in which we're looking at these things. Now a couple of weeks ago we saw the preparation of the Lamb between the tenth and the fourteenth days. Last week we saw the offering of the Lamb roasted in fire, its flesh. Uh, We saw the significance of its bone and also of its blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, possibly on the doorstep too, I left you with that last time and tonight I want us with God's help to look at the Lord's people partaking of the Lamb so preparing the Lamb offering the Lamb and now partaking of the Lamb thinking of that in connection with Christ of course and especially the Lord's Supper well then partaking of the Lamb And I think we can divide that into two things. First of all, briefly, who is it that actually partakes of the Lamb? And then second, and a bit more fully, how do they partake of the Lamb? There are special instructions, of course, regarding how they partake of the Lamb. Now, first of all, who is it that partakes? And in chapter 12 and verse 47 we're told that the whole congregation of Israel shall keep this feast. The whole congregation shall keep it. But that's further explained in verse 43. Right at the end of the verse, it's specified that no foreigner shall eat it. In verse 45, we're told that a sojourner and a hired servant cannot eat it and a little later on in verse 48 we're told that a stranger who wants to keep the Passover can eat it if he is first of all circumcised now let me just say a a little about that and especially in connection with the Lord's supper first of all the foreigner, now the foreigner is someone who doesn't belong to the people of God At this particular stage, God's visible church is confined to Israel. That doesn't mean that people outside of Israel could not be saved. The Lord had his ways of reaching people. Uh, He always did. Someone like Melchizedek wasn't in Abraham's household, but he was a priest of the Most High God in Jerusalem, and, and so on. But God's visible church, nonetheless, to whom he gave his ordinances and So on, they are confined to the people of Israel. So a foreigner, as such, was not to partake. The the meal wasn't open to someone who didn't belong to the people of God. The sojourner is a reference to a temporary resident. So it's someone who comes into Israel, or comes in amongst the people of God, to live or to work, residing there, but not of the people of Israel. They are not to partake of the Passover either, even if they've been living there for a long time. The hired servant, he is also not allowed to partake of the Passover. He is just someone who has come from another place to work for a while in Israel. Neither is he allowed to partake of the sacrament. But if there's a stranger living in Israel and wants to partake of the sacrament, there is a way to partake of the sacrament. And this is one of these places where we're reminded of the fact that there's nothing nationalistic or xenophobic about these regulations that the Lord puts in place. It's not because foreigners are foreigners, or because they're strangers, or because they have a different color of skin, or anything like that, that's got nothing to do with the commandments the Lord gives. If there's someone living amongst them who happens to be of another nation, and of another color of skin, or another ethnicity, there is a way open. And that way is to learn the faith, to profess the faith, and then to make sure that they are circumcised. Which is the sign of belonging. (coughs) The sign of cleansing putting away the flesh, renouncing all power in yourself to save yourself or to produce a godly seed after you, that foreskin is cut off and put away and instead your trust is in the Lord God alone. And after that circumcision, the way was open for that stranger to come into the people of God and on the same footing, I mean, God specifies that in Verse 49, there's to be no difference, he says. In verse 49, there shall be one law for the native-born Israelite and for the stranger who dwells among you. Now that reminds us again of something I suppose we know well, even if we don't always understand maybe the rationale behind these things. But just as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Passover, sorry, was for the Lord's people, so was the Lord's Supper for the Lord's people. And if anyone from the outside wants to come in, well, it's open for them to come in, but not on any terms. Neither is it up to me to decide when I come to partake of the Lord's Supper. Neither should I expect the elders of the church to allow me to partake of the Lord's Supper when I wish to partake of the Lord's Supper. First of all, I must learn the faith. I must profess the faith, and then instead of being circumcised, I must be baptised. And only then can I partake of the covenant meal. Initiation first, participation second. That is always God's order. And you'll notice in verse 21 here that all this is supervised by the eldership. In verse 21, Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families. Those were the families under their care. Because the eldership in ancient Israel had a certain amount of families that were under their own particular care. And they are the ones, the elders, who judge between a stranger and a sojourner and a hired servant. They are the ones who make sure that the Passover is kept when it's supposed to be kept and where it is supposed to be kept. Especially so in after years when the Passover wasn't a family meal in a house but was actually kept in the tabernacle in the wilderness a central place of worship and then once the temple was built in the promised land that's where they attended the Passover once a year around March or April time. It was the elders who supervised it. They admitted to the Passover and they excluded from the Passover. And every young man at 12 years of age was examined as our Lord was at 12 years of age. It's interesting that that's the only incident recorded of his life. They were examined as to their knowledge and understanding of Scripture and as to whether their life was consistent with a commitment to God. The eldership is responsible for all that. That we broadly recognize as fencing the Lord's table. The Lord's Passover was fenced, and so the Lord's table is fenced. And that's effectively what was happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we saw that awful, it's almost an unbelievable situation, where a man was in a relationship with his stepmother. And instead of dealing with that as, as the Lord expected them to deal with it, the elders, after all, possessed the keys of the kingdom on this earth. They're supposed to exclude from the table as well as admit to it, but they were kind of glorying in a kind of love, you know, a kind of tolerance, this kind of thing that says, "Well, who are we to judge that person?" Or stuff like that, which is uh, so popular today. So they just let it be, and you, you can almost feel the righteous anger in the apostles' heart telling them to deal with that matter and he says to purge out the leaven from the midst. He says even a little leaven, never mind the leaven that you have, will eventually permeate the whole lamp. He says deal with this and put the man outside until God deals with him. God perhaps will use Satan to deal with him and God will bring him to a place of repentance and then by all means receive him back in. It's it's an interesting thing to notice that in the second letter to the Corinthians the eldership had swung around the other way and they would have nothing to do with the person. And the apostle is telling them to bring the person back in. That's the way we are. if, If we're not on one end of the pendulum the pendulum's going to the other end. He had to appeal to them to receive the man back in because he was broken and he was clearly repentant. But they were failing to guard the Lord's Supper in Corinth. And you'll notice how the Apostle appeals to the Passover. You have leaven, he says. You're supposed not to have leaven. Purge out the old leaven that you might be a truly consecrated lamp to the Lord. Now all these things help us to understand where churches are going wrong. For example, let's say you're away somewhere and you go to a church and they're having communion and there's no table. There's no table I don't mean by that a physical table which should really be there if it can be done but by no table what I mean is no separate space for the Lord's people to sit at so the Lord's people are just seated uh, indiscriminately amongst everyone else in the church not right there's no fencing going on there's no guarding you'll notice that they will pass the elements round those who don't want to take it will pass the element to somebody else not right The elements should not go into the hands of people who are not the Lord's people as though it was their decision whether to take the element or not. It's not a voluntary, individualistic supper, this. It is the Lord's appointment for the Lord's people. You'll often hear it said, well, you know, we leave these things to people's conscience, whether they take it or not. Well, who told you to do that? Where is that in the Bible? It's not up to a person's conscience. It's the Lord's commandment to admit and to exclude. That's why our confession says that those who are unworthy of the sacrament, now that doesn't mean um, personally unworthy, everybody's personally unworthy, what it means is that their life is inconsistent with their profession. Those who are like that should not partake of it, nor be admitted to it. And notice what the writers of the Confession are stressing there. The duty of the eldership. It's my duty and other elders in this congregation to see to it that those who come to the table have a life consistent with an intelligent profession. And all elders, me included, need to really start taking that seriously. It's our responsibility. Purge out, he says, the old So that um, is who should partake. It's obviously a meal for those who profess Christ as their saviour and who are recognised by the elders as making what's often called a credible profession.
1: A credible
0: profession is one that can be believed. It's as simple as that. In other words, if I was to come to a session and say, well, I'm a Christian now, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but out I go uh, drinking or dancing on a Friday night and I I do whatever like I used to do it. Well, that's an incredible profession. It's quite incredible. A credible profession is where the life and the speech marry up. No elder assesses a heart. It's not possible for a minister or an elder ever to assess a heart. Only God can assess a heart. But office bearers are called to assess the credibility of what is said along with the life that is lived. So right from the beginning, the sacraments are fenced. They belong to the Lord's people. But more especially, how do they partake of this Passover? Well, of course, viewed from one perspective, you partake of it by faith, of course. It's by faith that you really have fellowship with the God who appointed the sacrifice. And it's a remarkable thing, of course, that the, the very animal which dies is the animal that feeds you. As the scripture says, we, we feast upon a sacrifice. We feast upon the sacrifice. And, of course, that becomes so vivid when we think that the Christ who died for us is at the same time the Christ who gives us life and the Christ who feeds our souls. And the very act of coming to the one who gave himself in your room instead is telling the Israelites that this person who takes their place must be for them their all and all, must be their meat and their drink, must be the one who sustains them in life, their hope for eternity, the one who gives them a, a reason to live. And a hope in dying. We feast upon the one who gave himself for us. We have to partake with faith in that. But when I'm asking the question, how exactly do they partake? I'm I'm really actually thinking about something else. And I want us really at this point just to turn away from the lamb himself. And to think about the accompaniments to the meal. Because God specified that it's not just all about the lamb, although in one way it is all about the lamb, its flesh and its blood, it is all about the lamb. But nonetheless he says there are accompaniments to this meal. Bitter herbs and unleavened bread. As I mentioned I think either last week or the week before the herbs and the bread are not actually really to do with Christ Himself. They are really to do with the worshippers themselves. Christ is the lamb, the blood, and the bone. But the herbs and the leaven, or the herbs and the bread, are something to do with the people who are eating. There's something to do with the way that they eat. The lamb. They eat the lamb with unleavened bread and with herbs. Something to do with the spirit in which they're coming to the meal. And if you're to ask, well, what is that spirit? I think we can simply say, in essence, that it is the spirit of repentance. That both the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs remind us that they should be coming to this meal with a repentant spirit, as a repentant people. It's as a repentant people that we're coming to Christ. I mean, there's no other way to come to Christ except as a people who are trying to get rid of their sins. No other way. As I mentioned in the morning, no other way makes sense. It's as a repentant people that you come. It's as a repentant people that you come to the Lord's table. Um... There's a sense in which you take sin with you to the Lord's table. There's a sense also in which you don't. Because when you sit there as repentant people, you are purging the leaven out of your heart. It's important to remember that. When you sit as a repentant people, you are purging leaven out of your heart, presenting yourself again as an unleavened lump before the Lord. I'll come to that in a second. But our repentant people. That's how we come. Now, repentance, as you know, I'm sure, means simply really to change. To repent is to change. God wants us to change. Sometimes people think that repentance means to be sorry. Well, it certainly means to be sorry. But it means much more than to be sorry. Some people are sorry, but they never change. Repentance is changing. The Hebrew word that's that's translated uh, repent means to turn around. That's what it means. It means to turn around. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated repentance is to change your mind. And strangely enough, when you put the Hebrew word and the Greek word together, you get a complete picture of what it is. It's to change your mind and change direction. It's as simple as that. Sometimes you say to yourself, oh, these, these words, you know, like regeneration and repentance, and then you say, I don't know what they mean. And Then you push them away from them, from yourself as though they're not your duty and they're not your problem anymore. Well, repentance, friends, is quite simple, really. In that sense, it is to change your mind and to change direction. It's to turn right around. It's to change your mind about God, change your mind about Christ, as we saw in the morning, change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about who you are, your direction in life and where you're going. Change your mind and change that direction. Move in another direction. Take up the cross and start following the Saviour. Now when I say that simple, I mean simple to understand. It's not simple to do all right. Oh, it's very far from that. In fact, only the Lord can give us the heart to do that. The strength to do it. Only the Lord can do it. But that is what it means change right round. The shorter Catechism answer to the question is an interesting one. Now when I read an answer like this I'm conscious that it's quite difficult to, to keep your mind on it. But let's just bear with it for a second. The question of course is what is repentance unto life? Like what's real repentance? As opposed to a dead feeling sorry for yourself. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. So it comes from God. By which a sinner, one out of a true sense of his sin, that's the first thing, and an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, that's the second thing. So you've got an awareness of your sin first, and an awareness that God is merciful, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with a full purpose of and an endeavour after new obedience. So, you're serious about new obedience, to put it simply. You're purposing it and you're trying towards it. A wholehearted endeavour after a new obedience. So, real repentance means you're aware of your sin, you're a sinner under God's condemnation. Second, you're aware that God actually is merciful to sinners of all kinds. And third, you hate your sin, grieved by it, turn from it, and you aim for new obedience. Now it struck me that that is exactly what's represented by the herbs and by the leaven, and also in fact by their appearance that night, because God said, get your sandals on your feet, put your staff in your hand, and put your belts on. They had longer flowing robes in those days, so any time they were going to run or go on a journey, they would gird up the loins, is the old expression. They would gather up their clothes and belt them so that they were free to move. Belts on, shoes on, and your staff in your hand. And when you take all these together, the herbs, the leaven, and their appearance that night, What you have is grief and hatred from sin, turning from sin, and an endeavour after new obedience. Let me say something about all of these in turn. First of all, the bitter herbs. In verse 8 of chapter 12. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with Bitter herbs; they shall eat it. Now, what are the bitter herbs all about? I suppose, in a way, the first thing that comes to our minds is what we're told at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, where we're told that the lives of Israel in Egypt had become bitter because of the bondage. And in a way, I suppose, that's a clue. Their lives there were bitter and they're not to forget it. The strange and the sad thing is that they did forget it. I'm sure you all remember that when the wilderness became tough they said more than once we remember the melons and the leeks and the cucumbers and the garlic um, and the onions that we enjoyed in Egypt. That's quite an astonishing thing for an enslaved people to say but uh, that is the way Satan works. When things get hard in the wilderness, he makes you look at Egypt as though, hey, that wasn't such a bad place to be in after all. <clears throat> oh, you were glad enough to leave it at the time. And if, if you had any sense, you'd be glad to stay out oh, of it do? Because it was a bitter life. And the Lord made it bitter to you. And that's why you came out and you followed him. But the bitterness of the bitter herbs is... It's more than that. It's saying something more than the fact that their lives were bitter in Egypt. Bitterness is always associated with sin and its consequences in the Bible. And I think we could say that there's a kind of bad bitterness and there's a good bitterness, depending on which side of the sin you feel the bitterness on. Sorry, depending on which side of the repentance you're feeling the bitterness on. If you're feeling the repentance, sorry, if you're feeling the bitterness on this side of the repentance, uh, that's not such a good thing. If you're uh, feeling the bitterness on the other side of the repentance, that is a good thing. B- bitterness has its own place on the palate. Uh, I'm conscious that in a way bitterness people say, is, is there really to help you to, to sometimes reject what isn't good or healthy. But there is actually an element of bitterness that's pleasant, providing it's in the right degree and of the right kind. Well, the same is true with spiritual bitterness. The bad bitterness is the bitterness that sin itself brings. That, that's what Israel had in Egypt. It, it, was, it was a bondage. And it was a bondage that they had taken on themselves. And in that connection, you have to keep going back and remember why were they 400 years in that place in the first place? Because they had ceased to be the light of the light that God wanted them to be in their society. They had merged into Egypt in their feeling, in their experience. They lost their distinctiveness, their consecration, their vitality, their stranger and pilgrim mentality to God. They lost that and they became Egyptians largely themselves while well, God would take them take the world and let the world make you bitter and it did make them bitter that's bitterness on this side of repentance as God says to Jeremiah you shall taste that it is an evil and bitter thing to sin against God and um, if you're not not here as a Christian you you will if you haven't discovered the bitterness of a, a Christless life you will believe me you will As a Christian here, if for some reason you've forsaken the fountain of living waters and you've hewn out for yourselves broken systems, you'll discover, as he said to Jeremiah, to tell the people that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. But there is a good bitterness. The good bitterness is the remembrance of your sin when you are coming to Christ in repentance. That's got its place. It's right and proper that it should be there on the right side of the repentance. It's the kind Peter had when he went out after the oaths and the curses that night saying that he did not know the Lord. Oaths and curses he denied that he knew his Saviour. It's an awful thing. The Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter repented. He went out, and he wept bitterly, we're told. He wept bitterly. Is that a good bitterness? Yes, that's a good bitterness. Why? Because he is conscious of the evil of his sin, and he's sorry for it. He's sorry for it. And when we see sin in its proper light you know how we see it? We see it as the the thing that crucified our Saviour. That is how we see it. We see our sin as what put our Saviour to the tree and that's a bitter herb. And it's a bitter herb that has its place in the Christian life. It has its place in the Christian life. It was my sins that nailed him to the tree, and when we come to the Lord's Supper, in that respect, let or even any ordinance that Christ has left us, let the bitter herb have its place. Let it have its place. Isaiah, in a way, sums that up for us. In a sense, when he says in the in the famous last and final servant song, he says. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, struck by God like a leper and afflicted and yes he was, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. You could say because of our transgressions and our iniquities. The justice meant for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. Let that bitter hair, as I say, always have its place when you come to Christ. It's good to remember that it's your sins that put him to the tree. In other words, never divorce your Saviour from your sin. Never do that. And keep a lively sense of sin if you're going to keep a lively sense of your Saviour. But as well as having a grief and hatred for your sin, which is what the bitter herb brought before Israel, the second thing they were to do was to turn from that sin, and that's represented by the leaven. And the commandments are given so often in chapter 12 to make sure that there's no leaven. You'll notice that as well as guiding them on this particular night, God effectively tells them on this night itself that, there's going to be a standing up feast every year, he says, in your existence. There's going to be a standing seven day feast, which begins with Passover on the 14th of Nisan uh, to the 21st every year, a seven day feast where you eat no leaven on pain of death. Now, very often people suggest that the reason for no leaven had to do with the fact that they had to leave Egypt in a hurry. And we are told that they did leave it in a hurry. And in one place it is said that uh, they didn't take leavened bread with them because they left in haste. Now, you may think, well, that then is the only reason for it. But it's not as simple as that. Remember the lamb was to be selected on the 10th day. So we're at least four days away from Passover night right here. That's plenty time to make leavened bread. Plenty time. The fact that they left in haste means that there wasn't any time after the Passover to then make a batch of leavened bread. Israel might have thought that there were a few days perhaps between the Passover and actually getting out of Egypt. Far from it, because once the Passover was finished, once the firstborn had died in Egypt, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, get out of here. Get out of here. No time. The Passover was finished and they had to go. They probably expected to be able to bake bread. That tells us that the reason for unleavened bread is a symbolic one. It's nothing to do with haste, really. It's to do with something else. And that's confirmed by the fact that a whole feast, a seven-day feast, was built around unleavened bread. Well, what does it represent, then? I'm sure most of you know that in the Bible, leaven represents sin. Why? Because it works like sin. It's as simple as that. Leaven was just a a little bit of barley that was put into water and kneaded for a time and just left. And the dynamic yeast organism is there. Then, when you're baking a dough, you, you just put it in, you put the yeast in, and it starts to permeate. Just like sin, invisibly, silently, thoroughly. It permeates the whole. As the Apostle said to the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lung. In fact, it's amazing how quickly it works. It just disseminates its way. It puts its influence on the whole door. The, the leaven is so powerful that you just put a little bit in and suddenly the whole thing is like leaven. The leaven wins. Sin does too. You give sin an inch in your life and it takes a mile. And it penetrates so quickly and so powerfully. You give the accursed thing a little space. You allow the leaven a little room in your heart. And before you know where you are, the soul's conquered. That's why you've got to be so vigilant against it. And that really is telling Israel that when they come to Christ, they come as a repentant people, having nothing more to do with sin. Like Ephraim, when Ephraim said, What do I have to do anymore? With idols, So with the Lord's Supper we purge out the leaven. Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, Let us keep the feast, he says, not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, what you once were in this life. I think malice and wickedness there just represents sin in general. Let's keep the feast, he says, from now on with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. An inward heart consecrated to God, walking in truth according to his commandments, in spirit and in truth. Let us keep God's feast like that. Very well, but what about the seven day feast of the unleavened bread? Well, that's an interesting thing. Because from this year onwards, once they set out into the wilderness, 14th to the 21st, Seven days, no eleven. Finished by a Sabbath. Well, here our numbers come into play again. What is seven? Completion, fullness. What is a Sabbath? Rest. What's that telling us? Well, surely it's a way of, through a feast, conveying the importance of a full life cycle, of living the the full, complete life that God has given you in this world, before he calls you home to a final Sabbath of rest, living it leaven-free. In other words, you shouldn't fall into the trap of maybe people who are very sacramentarian in their thinking, or churches that are sacramentarian thinking, saying, oh well I'd better tidy up my life because it's the Lord's Supper, or I'd better tidy up my life because it's confirmation, or, I better even tidy up my life because it's Sunday or the Sabbath. It's a lifelong thing. It's a day by day thing. Let the whole of your seven day cycle in this this whole life that God has given you be a leaven free life. I write these things to you as John says that you sin not. And that's got to be your resolution and mine until God's Sabbath comes and brings me into glory while at last I'll have nothing to do with lemon anymore. And you say, well, if that's what it represents, what's the point of cleansing yourself at the Lord's Supper? Well, every point. Because the God who tells us to be sin-free all our lives is the God who knows fine well that we still need stations and times where we have special consecration and special cleansing. That's why there are preparatory services when the Lord's Supper comes. That's why we examine ourselves when the Lord's Supper comes. That's why we come to the Lord's table purging out the leaven. Sometimes we're conscious that we're bringing it with us, like I said earlier, in our hearts. Purge it out by prayerful repentance. Because God knows just us. we need to be something all the time. We need to be specially that thing some of the time. And the Lord's Supper has... It's place for that. I write unto you that you sin not. And these things were so important in connection with the leaven that if anyone had leaven, they were to be put out of the fellowship of Israel. Cut off. Which means effectively excommunication. The the Jews developed a kind of game that they played for children. On the 14th, when they got rid of all leaven out of their houses, they would put a, a little piece of leaven somewhere in the house and they would tell the children to find the leaven you still play maybe a form of that game with your children when they were getting near the leaven they would say you're warm when they were away from it you're cold until they found the leaven and then they would tell them what the leaven represented maybe that is a way of involving children in something from a day, in a day to day way but the point is get rid of it hate leaven purge it out make it your life business not just a Lord's Supper business So there's a grief and hatred of sin, that's your bitter herbs. There's a turning from it in the lamb. Last of all, there's a full purpose and an endeavour after new obedience. Because the Christian life is positive as well as negative. You're not just saying farewell to an old life. You're saying welcome to a new life. There's an old life to avoid. Egypt's life. There's a new life to embrace and it belongs to the promised land. That's where we have the belt and the staff and the shoes. They're eating in a hurry. A hurry to do what? To get out of there. A hurry to get out of there. Egypt doesn't represent the world that we have to live in. It represents the world that we have to flee from. The way it lives, the way it organises itself, the way it prioritises things, the way it views things. Get rid of it. You're no longer to think, behave and act like the world, We're separate people and a distinctive people. And you've, you've got to flee from it, like Bunyan's Pilgrim did in Pilgrim's Progress when he left the city of destruction with his fingers in his ears. And even his family are saying to him, stay, stay in this city. No, he says, I've read in this book that this city is doomed for destruction. He says, I've got to get out of it. So fingers in his ears, he gets out of the city. That's exactly what this is telling us to do. And he mustn't stop in the plain, like Lot was told not to stop in the plain. As his wife tragically did when she turned round and looked back towards Sodom. Because, well, she was off Sodom. She was off Sodom. And she was sorry to see it go, and because she was sorry to see it go, she perished with it. If we love the world, and if we can't unlove the world, we'll die with the world. It is as simple as that. For Israel, this was the beginning of a new life. And let Christianity be like that for you and for me too. They could all say what David did, what we're going to sing in a moment. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are. But hastily thy laws to keep myself I did prepare. That's what they were doing that night. I'm preparing myself in haste. I don't belong here. I'm getting out. I'm staying with the people of the Lord who love his word, his ways and his works herbs, leaven, clothes hating sin, leaving sin and endeavouring after new obedience and it's a solemn thing and I close with this to think that on this night when they're very solemnly eating what God has told them to eat that very night, the angel of death is passing through the entire country of Egypt. A scream of desolation in every single household as the firstborn are taken away, except where God sees the blood, and there the angel of death passes over. And God, when God sent Moses in the first place, he said, Moses will harden his heart, he says, and he, and he won't let you go. But by the time, he says, I've finished with him, he will drive you to the land. And so it was. On that very night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron into his presence and said, Get out of here. Get out of here. Well, so the exodus begins, as we'll see next time. Let us pray. Eternal one, uh, we praise thy name for the sacrifice that fulfilled all these. The Lamb of God, who didn't just take away the sin of Israel, but the sin of the world. And we are thankful that through faith in him, uh, we too have been purged, and we are cleansed. And we pray all our lives long to keep purging out this leaven that we may be a newly consecrated love to the Lord. We ask, Lord, for grace to keep a lively sense of our own sin and unworthiness, to remember in a good sense that it was our sins that nailed him to the tree. And may these things help us as Hezekiah resolved to walk softly and humbly all the days of his life. In the Saviour's name. Amen. Let's conclude by singing those words that I just referred to a minute ago in Psalm 119 and at verse 57. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. And he did that in verse 58 with his whole heart, asking for mercy at the end of the verse. And then in 59, I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try. wonder if you can do that yourself. Just go back over your life and test it tonight. See what it's about and where it's going. And to thy testimonies pure, my feet, then turned I. And he's in a hurry, shoes on his feet, staff in his hand, unbelted. I did not stay nor linger long, as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep. Myself I did prepare. These verses to God's praise.
1: Stand to sing. Oh my, she was our God.